Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Point, right? you're going to I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt like the same She did say, you've changed. The soldier put everything on the line to help one of our boys. Welcome to Life on the Line. For this bonus episode, I spoke with my Thistle Productions colleague, Angus Horden, about his late father, John. John Horden was a World War II veteran and a part of the largest naval battle in history. Thanks for speaking with me today, Angus. Thanks, Alex. It's my pleasure. First, Angus, can we start with a bit of background on John's childhood? My dad was the son of a minister, and consequently they were always moving from parish to parish. He was one of six children, four boys and two girls, and they all grew up in the Great Depression, really not knowing how bad the Great Depression was and simply just accepting life as it was at the time. They were often in rural areas where they enjoyed country life to an extent with, you know, chickens. Of the four boys, three actually ended up serving during the war. And beforehand, Dad had actually ended up boarding at Knox because his father as a minister had literally moved around so many times they wanted to centralise his education and hence he went to Knox Grammar School here in Warunga. And John's first exposure to military life was at that very school. He was at Knox at a time where the founding headmaster, a chap by the name of Neil McNeil, presided over the boys. And he instituted for the school a very rigorous physical training program. He also enjoyed the discipline of the cadet corps, McNeil, as I mentioned before, founding headmaster of the school, was a World War I vet himself. And having lived through the horrors, certainly the Battle of Luz where he was gassed, he realised that the world was unlikely to heal its wounds from the First War. And seeing the storm clouds descend upon the world, he decided to train his boys. So it wasn't enough for him just to produce well-educated boys. He wanted boys that were going to adapt and survive in this horrific conflict that was to claim over 60 million lives in the Second World War. And that horrific conflict was what inspired him to join the Royal Australian Navy. Yes, he um, joined the Navy in 40, he left Knox in 42, and he joined the Navy because the Navy would take boys younger than the Army and Air Force at that time. So he was keen to get into the action. And early on in the war, he served initially on supply ships. There was one called the Merka, which was actually a German reparation from the First World War. So German ship captured up in New Guinea, the beginning of the First World War, we'd held on to it after the war, and now we were using it as a supply ship. And he was in charge of a hold where there were four holds on the ship where they stored goods, and their job would be going down to Brisbane or Townsville, collecting supplies and basically just following the fleet. They had to watch out for subs that were in the area, but they stayed pretty close to the coastline, certainly through the reef, so that protected them to an extent. And where does John go to next? What's his next vessel? He has a pretty, to be frank, lacklustre war until the HMAS Shropshire. 
And Shropshire was a county-class cruiser. She had eight eight-inch guns on her, and she was the cruiser that replaced the Canberra, which we'd lost in the Battle of the Coral Sea. A gift from the British, I believe. Yes. So he served on board the Shropshire. They saw some incredible action. The Shropshire was attached to the American 7th Fleet, so the Australian fleet was two cruisers, the county-class cruiser Australia, which was our flagship, and her sister ship, the Shropshire. And we had two tribal-class destroyers, the Arunta and the Warramunga, and they were attached to the Australian squadron. So these four vessels were then attached to the American 7th Fleet. And this was the fleet that the Americans really retook the Pacific from the Japanese. There were many engagements that he fought in, but perhaps the most notable ones that would have greatest interest to our listeners would be the actions up in the Philippines. So in 1944, the war with Japan is coming to a head. The Japanese, they've retreated back to the Philippines, which they're holding. MacArthur has declared that he's going to return to the Philippines. So this huge armada is built up to invade at the Philippines. The actual landings at Leyte, where the Americans went ashore, was actually, it was a bigger invasion than D-Day itself. The naval battle that then followed to try and push the Americans and the Allies out of the Philippines represented the largest naval battle of all time. And there were a series of specific engagements that I can reference. The first kamikaze attacks that actually occurred in the Second World War were Japanese suicide units that actually started from the Philippines. And when they first launched their attacks, by coincidence, the very first ship they attacked was the Shropshire. Now, the Shropshire was, again, this county-class cruiser, but she had been fitted with this outstanding radar that the British had developed. Now, let's not forget that radar is what saved the Brits in the Battle of Britain, and The British did a couple of things very, very well. Their intelligence at Bletchley Park was an absolute game changer, probably saved a year off the Second World War. Their development of radar, similarly, was a game changer, that the radar on Shropshire was the best in the Seventh Fleet. So even the Americans referred to her as the picket ship, that they'd send her out on pickets so that she could pick up the incoming bogeys before anyone else would see them. What they used to do on this Shropshire, as the ship's crew have explained to me, they had these eight-inch guns, massive things. They were able to elevate their guns 90 degrees, so they could literally point these guns vertically, and they could fire with short discharge, massive ordnance. And effectively, it's like a big shotgun. You're just putting up so much ordnance above the ship that any kamikaze that was coming down at you had to fight through this. And if it wasn't hit damaged or blown off course, it then had a chance of getting through to you. But so many of them were shot down. In fact, Shropshire was known as the lucky ship because she actually never sustained any wartime casualties, which is something that can be attributed to the efficiency of the crew more than anything else. And their wonderful skipper, Godfrey Nichols, at that time. But the problem was the kamikazes then bypassed Shropshire and actually attacked Australia and hit the bridge, killed the skipper and the crew. I think we lost about 26 guys just in the initial attacks. And effectively, the kamikaze attacks were so effective on Australia, Australia had to retire from the war and be refitted and repaired. Well, you mentioned just then the captain, Godfrey Nichols, that was such an inspiration and influence for your father. I want to quickly cut to a clip from the interview we did with John, which we'll come back to, describing the captain. We had a pretty good crew indeed, and we had a fantastic English captain. 
He was a lovely man, a good Christian man. I can remember, and always when I talk about it, my emotions swell up in my, my mind. Now, on several occasions when we were about to engage the enemy and the odds were against us or were, were equal, he would explain the, the layout of what, what the Japanese position and how the, so many ships were coming against us and how many we had. He then would say, now, before we, we go into our action stations, I can depend on you all, and we're going to have a prayer. And, and he would have a, a prayer for the whole ship's company to listen to. And it was something like this, Lord, tomorrow I'm going to be very busy. Please don't you forget me. I can, I can remember that very, very emotionally, even to this day. I remember a story your father telling us actually about the kamikaze and Kazali. So this guy, Kazali, he was manning the pom-poms, which were these anti-aircraft guns. And my dad actually used to load these as one of his you know, various action stations on board. When you loaded this pom-pom gun, which was an eight barrel anti-air gun, suited for close range. So when they got through the big stuff, the big eight inch guns, and they got within closer range, then you threw your pom-poms at them. It took a lot of men, a lot of time to load this thing because they could shoot the rounds so quickly. At the end of this very long day, Captain Nichols had piped an all clear, ship's company stood down, and most of them went forward to the forecastle. You've got to appreciate there's no air conditioning in these ships. You've got guys in anti-flash gear, so they're in serious clothing, in stifling conditions. They're just keen to peel off and get up on the deck and say, how are you, mate? Did you get through that? And, and just sort of live. And this lone Japanese kamikaze was skimming across the water towards Shropshire. Lookouts had, had stood down, and Kazali, who was captain of that gun, decided not to retire. Now, I don't know whether he was posted to stay at that gun, maybe he was, but anyway, Kazali sees this uh, kamikaze coming at him, and he knows that he's only got one shot at this guy, so he's got ammunition just for one burst. He's not gonna open up as he normally would, ahead of length because he doesn't have anyone else to reload his guns. So he waits for it to get closer and closer and closer and closer until it literally is at point blank range and then he opens up. And because everyone had stood down and were relaxed and weren't thinking of the war, suddenly this deafening noise and the guys aren't wearing any ear protection so they hear everything you know, goes off and Kazali opens up and it's a bullseye shot. He splits the Japanese in half. The engine of the plane goes straight across the forecastle, literally at deck height. Men dive to the ground, so they're on their bellies, otherwise they would have been chopped by the propeller, I was told. And the half goes across the ship and the other half goes into the water just on the port side. So you've got simultaneously two eruptions one on starboard, one on port, and it actually lifts the front of the ship with such the force. Now, Kazali certainly saved the Shropshire that day. His action was brilliant, but as was the Navy's tradition, and it's a funny one, sadly, they didn't seek to glorify or otherwise recognise outstanding service in the force. And where you see Army, Air Force guys from World War II appropriately recognised he wasn't, look, I think he may have been mentioned in dispatches, but he certainly wasn't appropriately recognised for saving a ship, 1,200 men. We'd lost 
the Aussie at this stage. To have lost our other capital ship basically would have knocked out the Australian squadron. Our influence with the Americans and their seventh fleet, gone. It was a pretty heroic, ballsy act, and he, he certainly saved the day. And Casale wouldn't be seeking any recognition for that, but he was just doing his job and he was trained for it, and that day he did it magnificently. You mentioned loading the guns. What were some of the other action stations your father had on board? His main action station was loading the portside pom-poms. In another action station was stationed below, and I think the Shropshire went down to six or seven levels. And he was tasked with one of these cabins where it was his responsibility if they were hit he had to seal off that cabin in order to protect the ship's seaworthiness and maintain its integrity so it didn't sink. So that was another action station. He told me that, yes, he was issued a hammock to sleep below like all the guys, but he actually had a, um, a little stretcher which he used to take up onto the deck and actually sleep on the deck at night time underneath the A turret, so underneath the front big gun of the ship. And he used to sleep there because the breeze was so much nicer. And John had a birthday during a particular battle. He turned 20 on uh, 20 October 1944. That was the Battle of Sirigara Strait, and, and this was the biggest battle that they were probably involved in. So the Americans had landed, and the Japanese were sending a naval force to the north and the south of this island to break through the straits and to basically rip through the American pickets and get stuck into all the transports and supply ship that was supporting the landing. And the Japanese felt if they could knock off the supply ships, then they could actually then succeed in pushing the Allies out of the Philippines. So what happened was the Japanese Southern Force steamed through 0350 hours on the 20th of October and led by a couple of battleships, and then they had the appropriate cruisers and destroyers following. And the Americans knew they were coming through good intel again, and they had formed the classic T across the strait. And the closest end of the T, or I should say semicircle, was the Shropshire. So again, she was stationed on picket. And the Americans, as it was explained to me by ship's company, had actually already used up a lot of their armament in the bombardment of the Philippines. So they weren't real happy about discharging a lot of their rounds until they really needed to. So they had sort of Shropshire up forward more. And again, with the foresight of her skipper, Captain Nichols, she was well loaded. You know, Nichols had put so much extra ordnance and men on board that he could counter so many more scenarios. Long story short, this Japanese battleship peels off and, in, and is heading straight through the gap. Closest ship to it is the Shropshire. And the Yamashiro didn't have the sophisticated radar that Shropshire did, so she's actually using searchlights in order to look for the enemy. Shropshire opens up, I think it's at 0356 hours, and the cordite that the British armaments used created a great illumination. So it actually gave the impression to the Japanese that they were fighting a battleship or the major ship. So suddenly Yamashiro turns its 14-inch guns against Shropshire, which has eight eight-inch guns. So you can sort of measure the disparity in force here and concentrates its fire on Shropshire and Shropshire unleashes hell. She fires 32 broadsides in the space of eight minutes and half of them actually hit. It's an amazing record to fire so many rounds so quickly, so accurately. Yamashiro's set ablaze. She's still firing randomly. Her broadsides straddle Shropshire 
again, which again fortunately missed them. Any of those shots, if it had collected the ship, well, it would have been the end of the ship and I wouldn't be talking to you today. It's magnificent firepower. It's what the Navy did so well. The boys had trained and trained for this moment and they were all spot on. And fortunately, Yamashiro is disabled. We then send in destroyers, you know, the Aranto Waramanga. They uh, fire torpedoes. The Americans send in patrol boats. The battleship is sunk and the force is neutralized and it's a great win for the Allies. And that was the great last big naval battle in the Second World War, where big ships came up and fired big shells at each other. It was also the last night engagement in the Second World War. And your father was also present at Corregidor. Corregidor is a really interesting story. I actually had the good fortune to go to Corregidor with my son about four years ago. And we walked all over the island and we noticed all the batteries. And at the top of the hill, there is a playing field. And the Americans had their base there. It's a bit like the British you know, Gibraltar in, in the Med. And it was the last place where the Americans held out before the Japanese took over in the Battle of the Philippines and from where MacArthur retreated by patrol boat to Australia. So it's very symbolic for the Americans to take back Krigador. The Japanese had defended this fortress island vigorously. They had all these bunkers. The Americans, again, came in with their ships and they didn't have the trajectory with their guns to lower them low enough to be able to shoot into the hill in order to knock out these bunkers that were causing the fleet hell. So Shropshire, again, with its wonderful flexibility, went in very close, was able to drop its trajectory and fire directly into these caves where the Japanese had hauled out their artillery guns so they would be spotted and these guys would just blow the hell out of them with these 8-inch rounds. What was interesting was the Japanese had defended the shoreline of Corregidor and they had failed to recognise the Americans' great airborne ability. And the Americans, where they'd had for example, the 82nd and the 101st over in Europe equally had good men in parachute groups in the Pacific. And these guys came across in these Dakotas. And Dad told me these guys were going solo. He could clearly see the paratroopers at the door of the Dakotas. And they were flying across the sea. And Dad waved up to them. They waved back to him. They were that close they could see each other. And then they went across... Corregidor. Now, the Americans knew Corregidor very well because it was their base. They had a big investment in it. They knew it very well. And at the top's this quadrangle, which is like a rugby oval. What they did is they started dropping men and they, very sadly, they were falling into the sea. Then they're, then they're falling up the slope of the hill. Then they're, most of them land on the quadrangle, which is a great feat in itself, and then they fall off the other side. So they had American patrol boats rushing in to pick up the guys in the water. Sadly, a lot of the guys were killed just going straight into the jungle. But what the Yanks did was they also dropped some of their mobile artillery, and they suddenly set up on the high ground their artillery. And the Japanese commander, he realised when the high ground at the top was taken and reinforced, and it had artillery, that he was done. You know, Corregidor didn't change the war, but it was just another one of these amazing stories that, you know, he witnessed and he was part of. Our radar was so efficient that it was able, we could pinpoint aircraft from the American carriers flying over Corregidor, 120 miles south of us. You could say, yes, they are American aircraft. The accuracy of the British radar was fantastic. They relied upon us continually for a support there. It's quite a series of amazing events your father's present for. He survives, 
peace eventually reigns, what does he go on to do after the war? The Navy instilled in my father a love of travel. He travelled the world and he decided at the end of the war to go back overseas. He worked in England for a while, but he decided to go to Germany and he knew the Germans were very good toolmakers. And after the war, the Germans had been totally humbled. They had been bombed out of submission. They had been conquered. They had been occupied. But the Germans had a lot to prove. They're very proud people. And look at the strength of Germany today as testament to this. But the Germans started making cars and tools better than anyone in the world. So Dad thought, well, I'll start representing these guys in Australia. So he went to these trade fairs. At these trade fairs, there'd be all these producers of German products, of oil cans, spirit levels, hammers, all this sort of stuff. And he was lucky to secure the agency for Pressel oil cans. And at that stage in Australia, there was great demand in the civil industries for everyone needed an oil can. We weren't making them, so everyone needed a Pressel oil can. So Dad was just lucky in right place, right time, right product. The Pressel guy at another fair then introduced him to other people. And these other people I'd like to speak to for a moment because they were really interesting people. So these were Germans, they were veterans of the Second World War, and they were tough guys. There was one guy, his name was Gunter Leipold, and he represented these spirit levels. So the yellow spirit levels you see in every building site around Australia actually came to Australia because my dad got the agency for that line. And when I finished school, eventually dad said, oh, you've worked hard. Let's go overseas on a holiday. And most of the time we actually spent was in these German factories, which with respect, I found interesting. And I learned a lot about business and production and all this sort of stuff early on. Gunter was a very interesting guy. He was a strong disciplinarian. I just remember meeting him a couple of times and he was a very authoritative, proud man. And I remember him telling dad because he got on very well with my dad. Dad was a veteran, he was a veteran. Fortunately, they hadn't fought each other. Gunter had been in Europe and dad had been in the Pacific and therefore they had a mutual respect for each other, which actually meant a lot to Gunter in particular. Gunter had actually served as Rommel's driver in the Western Desert. Wow. The other man was Heinz Umptenbring, and he was a really interesting guy. He was actually a survivor from Stalingrad. And in the closing days of Stalingrad, when Paulus hadn't been given permission to break out and the perimeter was shrinking and shrinking at Stalingrad and the men were cut off, no hope of escape. There was an aerodrome that Goering said that he could fly enough supplies in to keep the army going. Well, typical Goering, it was something he couldn't deliver. And basically that Ninth Army of Paulus's was just annihilated and then surrendered. But Heinz Umptenbring had the opportunity to escape. And what he did, he went to the aerodrome. If you can picture those Junkers 88s, they are three-engine planes. They were like the American Dakotas. They were the mainstay of the German supply for the Air Force. So at the Battle of Crete, these are the planes that the parachuters jumped out of. They had a fixed undercarriage and the plane was full. They couldn't fit anyone else into the plane. And we're talking freezing conditions. We're talking minus 30 degrees Celsius. And he goes up to the officer in charge and he says, I'm sorry, this is the last plane no more planes today, it's full. And he said, can I hang on underneath? And he says, if you're crazy enough to hang on to the undercarriage, 
good luck to you. And this is just showing the courage and the will to live at all odds. He climbs onto the undercarriage, which is fully exposed. He wraps his body around. The plane labors to take off into a heavy headwind. As soon as it takes off, it's receiving small arms fire from all the Russian anti-air that are on the perimeter. Bullets, are, he tells me, are hitting the plane. Miraculously, they make it. They then are able to avoid Russian fighters that pursue everyone because they're able to get into some cloud. He flies for what seems an eternity. I think it's about 20 minutes. But if it's minus 30 and then you allow the windshield factor, it's a horrifically cold that affects this man. And he hangs on and he hangs on and he hangs on. And eventually the Junkers gets to the German airdrome. But at this stage, he is beyond consciousness and he passes out and he falls from the plane. Now, fortunately for him, the plane had descended and was at this stage about 50 feet from landing. As the plane lands, the air attendant at the aerodrome notices this figure falling off the plane. So after the plane lands and the crew are relieved and they send the vehicles to unload all the injured out of this particular plane, this guy eventually walks to the end of the aerodrome. And then he has to walk through this snow and he finds this man and he looks into this hole where Heinz had fallen and as a result made this huge hole in the snow. And he's like 10 feet below him. And he said, are you alive? And he said, yes, I am. And he said, well, if you can get up and get back here, we'll look after you. He doesn't help him out. But Heinz struggles out of that hole, struggles along the airdrome, and he lives. And that man goes on to create an incredible German industry, which makes these wonderful tools, which my father represents. Very impressive connections your father's making and fascinating that he's able to swap war stories with the other side like that. And as you said, a good thing he wasn't directly in combat with them. I'd like to look briefly further and further into peacetime here. From your perspective, what was it like growing up with a World War II veteran for a father? So my mum and dad got divorced early and I sort of idolised my dad. So we would go away on holidays down to Threbo and we would drive down there and it's a good six hour drive. And I can just remember we did this every year and practically for the entire time, I would be asking questions about the war. And that's when he opened up and told these stories. He um, instilled in me a love of the military, a respect for the service of these people. He explained to me that a Horden had been in every war. His grandfather had fought in the Zulu Wars and had actually helped capture Ketawehu, who was the Zulu chief who presided over the Zulu massacre at Isandawanda and later the repulse at Rourke's Drift. And there'd been enough of the family that had done their time that it was instilled in me that I should as well. So that inspired me to to spend my decade with the reserves. In the Naval Reserves? I spent time with both the Army and Navy. I initially started off with the Army because I wanted to get what it was like to be an infantryman. I applied and joined the Commando Regiment here in Sydney. I found that very demanding, very taxing, very full on. And after a year of doing that, I then transferred into the Navy. I was commissioned and I joined the Naval Intelligence Division. And that was incredibly interesting work. It covered a period where we had the first Iraq war, etc. And I went to sea on numerous ships, etc. And, and submarines. Yeah, you've had quite an interesting career. First Commando Regiment, Naval Intelligence, you know, on ships, fast attack patrol boats, that kind of thing. You have continued your family tradition in a way. But I've been lucky because I've never had to see action like he did. But again, this is just the story of the forces that we want to have a good defence force so we don't have to use it. But it constantly needs to be up to speed. And that's what it's doing again today. 
Your father's war service also instills in you great interest and a passion for history, which brings you full circle back to your father's service when in 2010, you're inspired by meeting Richard Miles at an Anzac Day service at Knox Grammar School to begin a documentary project documenting the school friends of Richard that had survived World War II and record these stories. Your father's name was on the list provided to us to undertake that documentary. And then we met and began the For School and Country project, which we've covered extensively on this podcast before. So I won't go into all that. But one of the 12 interviewees was your father. And I fondly remember being behind the camera while you interviewed him. What was it like to, after years of hearing these stories growing up, to actually sit down and professionally interview him for a production like that? It was a um, obviously a very rewarding opportunity for me and an appropriate thing for him because the school gave us 12 people to interview. I was fortunate because my dad was one of them and I knew his story very well and I knew it was an interesting story. But again, he was just one of many boys and it was lovely for me to be able to interview him. It's something that I always have now, that memory of those recordings. I would say that the times in my life when I felt most proud to be with my father was always at Anzac Day, which was the day when we commemorated all the service of all his shipmates and all the prior family people and, and indeed all servicemen. It's been a wonderful thing to be able to tell his story and especially the story of all his mates from school, and that's been an honour. During that production when we'd finished recording the actual veterans on camera and we were doing the final bits and pieces other production work and doing all the editing and so on your father very sadly passes away yes it's quite ironic you know we're interviewing these 12 guys and before the show's finished my dad dies and the first of the 12 yes and in the production we actually have footage of the funeral and that's not seen to be mercenary but i actually wanted some footage just for family's sake of having a record of, you know, of the service. And when I mentioned to the other veterans in the production that we'd lost dad, you know, to a man, they were all there at the service. And it was especially moving to have dad's best mates from school, Arthur Party, Eric Few, John Reed, lay a poppy on his coffin. It was a very moving and a very special time for us. And look, later when we had that footage, I felt it was right to actually share that with the production because it epitomizes this life of service and a life of sacrifice. We close out the documentary on the shot of those school friends laying poppies on your father's coffin. And you're right, it was a family memento and then it actually turned out to be the most appropriate closure for us because we were doing this to honour the 68 Knox boys who went to war out of the 609 and never came home. And obviously your father came home, but it was a way to say all these men deserve to be honoured, all 609, but the ranks of men like your father are thinning as time moves on. We're well into the 21st century. There's fewer and fewer World War II veterans left with us every year, which is the whole motivation to start the project. So having that shot of your father's funeral was very bittersweet, very sad. It was exactly why we did it, why we began the whole thing. So it was an honour for me to have met your father, to have recorded that interview and then to be at the funeral. I can't imagine how you felt watching the documentary in its final stages as we're putting it together when the wound was still raw and recent. So I thank you for your generosity of opening that up and sharing it with us. I think it was very important. And it was important to be able to honour your father in the most expansive way possible because he had such an incredible story. It's been a privilege to have it on the record. And Angus, thank you for 
sharing your father with us across all those years and for reminiscing about him with me today. Good to be with you. John Horden was interviewed for our World War II documentary miniseries, For School and Country. You can find out more at forschoolandcountry.com and check out the Facebook page, For School and Country. Angus, Thomas Kay, Rohan Viswalingam and I also reminisced in a podcast about the For School and Country project and our combined passion for documenting the service of our nation's war veterans. That season two bonus episode is called For School and Country with Thistle Productions. And if you enjoyed hearing Angus's recount of German soldiers' stories from World War II, you should go back to the Season 2 bonus episodes, Eugen Pikura, German World War II veteran, and Horst Haser, German World War II veteran, for my conversations with those remarkable men. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget... Towards the dusk, this plane came in on the port side. I can remember quite clearly, we had a very good gunnery chap called Kazali. He was captain of the port gun. And when this plane came along, he grabbed the, uh, the firing position and opened fire and just kept firing again and again and again till the, the plane was chopped in half. And one half of it, of it, the pilot's section, the back to the tail, went in on the port side of the ship, and the other side, the, the other part with the engine and petrol and all that sort of thing, went over the other side of the ship into the water. The whole ship lifted out of the water quite immensely. You really sort of had your heart in your mouth, and you prayed hard. Mm-hmm.